Father, take my words and speak with them. Take our minds and think with them. And take our hearts and set them on fire with love for thee. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Today it is our privilege and joy to address the most famous, the most beloved verse in the entire Bible. Everyone knows John 3.16. We teach it in church school. We sing hymns about it. We memorize it in confirmation classes. Our reformers put it in the liturgy. It is one of the comfortable words. Martin Luther called it the gospel in miniature. Galen Onstead, a beloved priest friend of mine in my first church, used to call it the Bible in a verse. And William Barclay says it is the most illuminating scripture in all of, verse in all of scripture. Most of us know this. But most of us do not know the context of this declaration. It comes from a conversation with Nicodemus, the conversation which was just read by the deacon. Much in the gospel passage we could examine with prophet, the meaning of the new birth, the importance of water in baptism, the symbol of the spirit as wind, the authority of Jesus as teacher. But I want to look at just two verses, the two verses prior to John 3.16, verses 14 and 15. They read, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This refers to an incident in the Old Testament when Moses and the children of Israel are in the wilderness. They're complaining because they have no food or water, which actually, if you read the context, isn't true. They did have food and they did have water. They're just complaining. And the judgment on them is that their serpents are sent among them who will bite them with fiery bites. Now, fiery there means poisonous, and many people died. Moses prays for a relief. God says, Take a make a fiery serpent and hang it on a pole, and whoever looks upon the serpent on the pole will be delivered. It goes like this. Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and whoever is bitten when he sees it shall live. Now, when Jesus reaches, must be the high point of his teaching, John 3.16, he leads up to it with this bizarre, this strange comparison. Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. The comparisons are interesting. First, in both cases, the example from Numbers and this story from John, in both cases, death is threatened as a punishment for sin. Secondly, in both cases, it is God himself who provides the remedy. And thirdly, in both cases, the remedy consists of something or someone being lifted up. It would be useful to have two columns from the Old Testament and the New Testament and just set the typology side by side. The serpent in the Old Testament corresponds to Jesus in the New Testament. On a pole, on a cross. Lift it up, lift it up. Whoever looks, whoever believes, shall live. 
shall have eternal life. Here, Jesus is speaking of his own crucifixion. There's two other places in the gospel that uses this phrase, lifted up. One is in John chapter 8, verse 28. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, you shall know that I am He. And then again in chapter 12, verse 32, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, shall draw all men to Myself. And John the Evangelist goes on to explain this in the very next verse, verse 33, but Jesus is saying this to indicate the kind of death by which He was to die. To be lifted up is a reference to to his death, his crucifixion, his cross. And it is a sign of healing. I want to offer you a liturgical tip for those of you who like your uh, Anglican liturgy. There are three places, especially in the Holy Eucharist, when it's appropriate to make the sign of the cross. One is during the absolution, when the priest announces the absolution, we should not be with eyes bended down, but looking up and see the sign of the cross. That's what God says to Moses. Whoever looks at the sign will be saved. We look at the sign with knowledgeable faith. Or again, a second place is at the words of the creed, where it says, and I believe in the resurrection, I'm sorry, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Why do we believe in the forgiveness of sins? Because of the cross. And so as the priest is making the cross over himself, we also should take it to ourselves. And thirdly, we should look up at the final blessing when the priest announces the blessing. My own custom is to place my left hand on the altar and make the cross with my right hand so it's clear to people this is not my blessing. It's not the priest's blessing. It is God's blessing. And we want to go out of the church with that blessing. And how are we blessed? By the cross. Well, so much for liturgy. There's a fifth and final comparison that fascinates me here. Why does Jesus compare himself to a fiery serpent, a poisonous snake? That's what the word fiery means. It, it burns when you're bit by that kind of a snake. Now, Old Testament imagery is rich in sacrificial language. So why not an innocent sheep? Why not a scapegoat in the wilderness? Why not a simple dove offered in the temple? Doesn't a poisonous snake strike you as a strange, odd sign of healing? It does me. I called four doctors when I first researched this passage, and they all knew that from the AMA that there's what's called the caduceus. Uh, That's that sign of two intertwining serpents, and that has nothing to do with the biblical story. It's totally separate. Just as a sidebar, this is interesting. sort of the founder of medicine was a fellow named Asclepius, supposedly the son of Apollo, the god of healing. Uh, He had a clinic, can we call it a clinic, in Epidaurus in Greece. I've been there. A huge, huge, huge uh, temple. Uh, The roof is no longer on it, but uh, most of the columns are still there. They would invite people. They would give them uh, therapies of eating differently and bathing differently and exercising 
differently. And then the climax of the visitation to the clinic was that one night they would go with a mat and lay naked, by which is meant they had a loincloth, but otherwise naked on this mat. And then the priest along one side of the temple would take these baskets of insects and pour them out all along the one side. And on the other side, they would pour out these baskets of snakes. And the snakes knew where the insects were. They would crawl across the temple going over the bodies of all these people at midnight with incense and music being played. And I promise you that if I had a hundred snakes crawling over me in the middle of the night when I was naked, I'd have so much adrenaline in my body I could defeat anything I was sick with. Well, that's how they did it. Biblical stories totally unrelated. But it fascinates me. Because when I read my Bible, a serpent is always a symbol of what? Or of whom? Yes, Satan. The serpent, that ancient dragon. The third chapter of the Bible, Genesis, reads, And now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. And the third to the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 20, says, And the angel seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is called Satan and the devil. The word serpent appears uh, 15 times in the New Testament. 14 times it refers to Satan. One time it refers to Jesus. Why? Why does Jesus refer to himself on a cross, speaking in terms of a fiery serpent, a poisonous snake? I think it's because he's telling us what happens in his crucifixion. I think he's saying that sin is like poison, that it kills, and that we've all been bitten by the serpent Satan, that we will all die, and that we have poison in our veins, that we are subject to original sin, that God has provided a remedy, a visible, tangible sign of hope and healing. And that the cross of Jesus is that sign. So that whoever looks at that cross in faith, in trust, will live. But one thing more. I think that Jesus heals by taking the poison into himself. Like a doctor who cuts the wound and sucks out the venom into his own body. Jesus draws into himself The poison of our sin, all of our hatred and condescension, all of our arrogance and pride, all of our pettiness and shallowness, all of our sloth and indifference, all of our lust and concupiscence, all of our greed and avarice, all of our lasciviousness and licentiousness, until his body swells and contorts and blotches and bloats with the poison of our sin. And God, looking at this man, bearing the pandemonic bedlam of the accumulated sin of all time, says, that is not my son, that is the serpent Satan. Here's a Lenten musing for you. Think of the worst sin you've ever committed. Now think how much worse you would feel if you fully understood the grievousness of that sin and increase it by the reality of its full seriousness and then multiply that by all the sins you've ever committed. 
and then multiply that by all the people who have ever lived and who are alive and whoever will live and place that accumulated pain, that horror on the head of Christ. St. Paul, writing of this fashion, wrote to the Corinthians in the second epistle, chapter 5, verse 21, For our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And God the Father turned from God the Son because we dressed him in our sin. We injected him with our poison and made him look like Satan. There's a famous painting by a British illustrator named George Pinwell. It's called The Elixir of Love. It's a picture of a quack doctor, one of these medicine show fellows who's pulled his wagon into an American, Western American city square. And he's out in front of his wagon making his pitch, selling this product called the Elixir of Love. It's on the side of his wagon. And he has it in bottles. And the crowd's gathered around and listening to him as he makes his pitch. And there's two young girls over here listening. And there you can see the interest and enthusiasm on their faces. Here's an old, older couple. And you can see them remembering, hope it can be again. And here's some children looking on with wonder and awe at this man who sells love in a bottle. But if that's all you see in the picture, you've missed the point. You have to lift your eyes a little bit ahead of, above this scene, and then you'll discover that this medicine showman has set up his wares and is making a pitch right at the foot of the town crucifix, a life-size village crucifix. Above this man trying to sell love in a bottle, and everyone looking on with wonder and enthusiasm, hangs the Christ. And that's real love. God sent his son. That's love. And his son lived perfectly. And that's love. The son takes to himself the cup. Cold, because there is no warmth in me. Bitter, because there is no sweetness in me. Foul, because there is in me so much that is foul. Poison, because there is so much in me that is sin. He takes the cup, and that is love. And the Father, ready now to condemn the whole world's sin, born on the back of his only begotten, the Father has to turn away from his own Son. And now in the very next verse, Jesus goes on to summarize the whole matter. God so loved the world. During the Second World War, William Temple was Archbishop of Canterbury. He was with a friend who himself was not a believer, but they were attempting to do some relief work for widows and orphan people in London. His friend had just returned from London and was describing the Nazi bombings, the, the devastation, the, the fires, the deaths, and worst of all, the burned and mangled children. And at one point he just stopped and he said, if there were a God, he would see this and it would break his heart. And then stopping, 
Archbishop Temple turned and he pointed at the altar and he pointed at a life-size crucifix behind the altar and he said, it did break his heart. There. When I was sitting in England, I saw a French film with English subtitles, black and white. It's an odd film. It was entitled Forbidden Games in which church refugees were seeking to escape Paris in the midst of World War II. This Nazi plane comes down to strafe the refugees. Why would they care? But terrorism it was. And a young mother and a father, wishing to protect their child, put the child on the ground, and then they stretched their own bodies over the child's body to protect it. And the bullets from that plane killed the mother and the father. And after the strafing was done, the child crawls out from under the bodies of her parents. And she doesn't understand what has happened. And she calls for them to get up. And she pleads with them to get up. And she pulls at them. And then finally, enraged that they don't get up, this little girl starts kicking them and saying, Get up! Get up! Do something! But you see... They've already done everything they can. They saved her life by losing theirs. And it seems to me to be a parable about us. That we keep on asking so much of God when he's already broken his heart and broken his son. Let us pray. Blessed God, we pass by so quickly statements about your love for us. But let us never do so without understanding and seeing this picture of your Son crucified for us. And knowing that as the fiery serpent was lifted up and those who looked on it would live, so we, in faith, looking at your Son lifted up, might live and give you the praise which is yours. For Jesus' sake. Amen.